And then basically the only way that they can solve that problem is to move in different ways. And so if they can accomplish the task successfully, you know that they're creating more propulsion. And so that's kind of the long game. Like they may not figure it out today. They may make a little bit of progress. They might not figure it out next week. They may not figure it out in a month. But whenever they do figure it out, you know that you've made a change that matters as opposed to, I can tell them to bend their elbow more. They might be able to do that in the next 10 seconds, but that doesn't mean it's actually impacted their performance. That was Andrew Sheaf, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Lost Empire Herbs. You can get 15% off my favorite herbs for well-being and athletic performance by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. About three years ago, I got into herbalism after having Logan Christopher on the podcast, starting with the Phoenix formula, which literally had my body buzzing after I took it. Not in a jittery way, like coffee, but in a way where I really felt the herbs working with my body. Within two weeks, I was already noticeably stronger in the weight room. And ever since, I've made herbalism a regular part of my training regimen. I've totally ditched any sort of caffeine-laden pre-workout, and I really enjoy using supplements that come directly from the earth. Lost Empire Herbs was started by Logan Christopher and his two brothers to help bring back the lost empire of nature in our connection to it, and to bring the power of herbs to the general public. Again, if you want to see my favorite herbs, such as Shilijit, which has been mentioned by other podcast guests on this show, Phoenix Formula, and more, as well as get 15% off your purchase alongside a 365-day money-back guarantee, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for joining us. In the world of coaching, oftentimes we err on the side of overdoing coaching, saying too much, trying to do or put too many things in an athlete's head in the process of them learning a sport technique or a sport skill. And when it comes to being a better sport coach, be it strength and conditioning, track and field, swimming, basketball, whatever your area is, knowing more about how athletes learn and how to blend power, speed, and strength with technique over time and having an athlete really take ownership of that learning process, to me, that is athletic development. And as I've done this podcast, the more experts from different areas of the whole umbrella of human performance I can talk to. I feel the better. And one area of sport that I feel needs to have more of a piece of the conversation with this whole umbrella of human performance is swimming. In my time in the world of swimming, I spent seven years in the weight room with swimmers, but also on deck observing practices, talking to swim coaches, talking to swim biomechanists. And that time changed me as a coach. It changed how I write even strength workouts. It changed how I look at track workouts. It changed how I look at the long-term process of athletic development. And I'm really excited to have a swim coach as our guest today who also has a background in strength and conditioning. There's so much we can learn from these interdisciplinary conversations, no matter where you are in the field. Our guest today is Coach Andrew Sheaf. Andrew is an assistant swimming coach at the University of Virginia. The University of Virginia was the winners of the last two NCAA Women's Championships In addition to swim coaching, Andrew has an extensive background in strength and conditioning. And I actually met Andrew in person about eight years ago. I forget the exact year, but it was at a Douglas Heel Be Activated seminar. And I met Andrew there when he was at the time at Northwestern University. And it's great to reconnect with him for this podcast today. On the show today, Andrew will be speaking on elements of control 
and over-controlling technical development versus how he utilizes the constraints-led approach to create lasting changes, changes that stick, and changes that athletes can figure out and learn themselves in the process of coaching. He'll be talking about some specific nuts and bolts on how he utilizes the constraints-led approach for swimming. And we also talk about these concepts in light of speed training and other elements of performance. So there's a lot of back and forth in this talk between elements in swimming, elements in track, and speed training in general. And it was really fun to talk with Andrew on this level. So again, whether you're interested in speed training, technical development, strength and conditioning, or just overall good coaching practice, I know you'll find some good nuggets out of this conversation. And it was really fun to sit down and talk with Coach Andrew Sheaf. So with that being said, let's get on to episode 310. Andrew, welcome to the show, man. Could we get started by, um, I don't like to ask this too often, but I think you have a unique background in the sense of swimming and then strength and conditioning, sports performance. So uh, tell me a little bit about your background in both uh, what got you into swim coaching and then also the strength and performance side of things on on the strength level. Sure. So I was just in, in college, just pretty much fascinated with how people improved and, and, uh, you know, m- mostly it was selfish and just trying to figure out how to, how to get better myself. And then, you know, I just, I kind of got into the strength and conditioning side because it seemed to be a little bit more systematic and I don't know, they just seemed to have a more just, I guess, thoughtful approach than what, and, and there was just more information available as compared to what was available in swimming. And so I kind of got interested in that stuff. And then also because it was a lot more speed-based and, and traditionally swimming stuff is not very speed-based, it's pretty endurance-based. And so that was kind of what appealed to me. And then as part of my graduate program, I had to do an internship. And so I had to, I had the opportunity to do it at school with um, the University of Pittsburgh and Buddy Morris, who is now or was the head strength coach at the Cleveland Browns. And then also the Arizona Card- Cardinals as of late was the, the guy there. And so I got to do that with him. And then that one of his assistants was Thomas Linsky, who's now with the Jaguars as the head strength coach. And then he took a job with the Browns. And so I went and did that for the summer. And so I just kind of got exposed to that because I was really interested in the speed side. I saw that as something that was not real present with um, swimming. And so that was what really interested in me. And, and I just kind of kept rolling with that. And then went to grad school, did some coaching there, realized that swimming was what I really wanted to do as opposed to getting into the strength side and just kind of went from there. Cool. You know, swimming too, I, before we get to our first question, maybe this ties into it. Why do you think it is like when people think about swimming, I, they, they like, especially maybe I'm, I'm sure it's gotten better. I, in fact, I know it's gotten better in the last decade or two, just from my perspective, but like 20 years ago, it was probably almost all like just about yardage. And there, imagine there are very few coaches who are more yeah. about the finer tuned stuff. Whereas track and right. field, you know, it's counterpart. I think that track got to more quality type thinking yeah. earlier. And do you have any idea why that might be? Yeah. So I think, it, I think it's two things is one, you can't do it the other way with track. You know, you, people just get hurt. If you try mm-hmm. to run fast too much or you just tr- like, it just doesn't work. And I think people just get hurt too fast. Whereas in swimming, it kind of works going the distance way. And I think part of it is that you need to swim a lot to get better at swimming because it's so foreign. You just need a lot of repetitions, like just like playing an instrument, you got to do it over and over again. And so you could swim a lot. And because you swam a lot, even if it wasn't fast, it allowed you to get better at it. Um, And then the second thing was, you know, swimming's progression was basically like in the early 1900s, even through like 1950, like people just didn't swim. Like they'd swim for like 30 minutes and be like, oh, that was a tough workout. (laughs) And and I'm going to go win the Olympics. And then, you know, there was a couple of coaches that are like, eh, let's just pound people. And then you know, through the fifties and the sixties and the seventies, they just kept swimming more and more and more. And I think that part of it was like, they just got more practice and certainly they got fitter too. 
And then that just kind of stuck around because it worked pretty well for the vast majority of cases. And so it's kind of like people are, has, and rightfully so, they're hesitant to, to walk away from something that's been successful. And so, it, I mean, I feel like it just took a couple people to be like, ah, I'm going to see things a little bit differently. And then it just, if it works better over time, people are going to go that way. And so I think it just took time for it to be adopted kind of along the way. And, and now you start to see a more balanced approach. Yeah. So I'm, it's interesting what you said, because I think it'll play into some other things we're talking about is that the water is, it can be more forgiving. Like you can make yeah. more mistakes and kind of get away yeah. with it just because it's not like Especially the land. From a training where, standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. From a training. Yeah. yeah. But obviously it's not going to be the optimal approach if you're, you're still, right. you're still not going to be the best you could be, but right. you can maybe get away with more stuff compared right. to yep, yeah, sure. just showing up on land. So uh, Andrew, one of the things that I had read on your blog that I, I really love this quote, you posted this uh, Ed Smith quote, who I think it was like a cricket coach. Uh, yeah. And it was uh, because the important things are hard to coach. It is tempting to take refuge in the small, irrelevant things because the small, irrelevant things are easy. Tell me a little bit more about your take on that quote and how that plays into your coaching philosophy. Yeah. So, I mean, I love that quote too. And I feel like it's going to probably frame a lot of what we're going to discuss because it's it's central to coaching. It's kind of like cosmetic coaching versus really solving real problems. And so, you know, I think a lot of times there's a focus on the nuances and just little things that are almost aesthetic, but they're not really what determines performance. And so you, um, like coaches are looking at things that don't conform to, conform to the model they have in their head of how things should look, but that doesn't mean that those things are influencing what's ultimately going to improve performance. And, and also because these things are pretty subtle, it's, they're often things that can be managed or fixed by the athlete. So they're the things the athlete can control. And so coaches see that, like that they can make a change. It may not be one that matters, but like they can tell someone to change, you know, whether, what their hand's doing or whatever. And that makes a difference in the coach and the coach can see that. And so that's kind of reinforcing for the coach, but I think it doesn't really get down to the fundamentals of what actually matters. And those things are usually pretty hard to address. And so it's also kind of like, we'll just stay with, with what comes easy and what's, what's manageable to, to, to be a coach. Yeah. So yeah, one of the things I guess from like a land-based sport or a track uh, or teaching speed on the land, I yeah. see, I've, I've seen this for a long time is, and I've had this discussion with other coaches as well, is that a lot of coaches, they really like feeling like they're in control. They really yeah, like, exactly. yeah, they, they want to be in control. And an epitome of that might be someone coaching sprint drills on the land and saying, he uh, like heel up, knee up, knee up, toe up. It's funny because I, I actually fall over the term because I don't use that. <laughs> but like they'll <laughs> they'll they'll say like, all right, well, dorsiflex your foot and get your knee up, you know, or whatever. It's like there is a small thing that is highly highly controllable. But right. it was about I, I mean I've been learning through working with Adarian Barr, and then I after I started learning with from Adarian, who's been on this podcast, I would start to see athletes doing those drills. And then you'd go watch them like in their track and field races. And I saw this, of course, when I was coaching track and field on the college level is I would, the athletes would do sprint drills or whatever I was trying to get them to do and run completely differently. And it wasn't too long before I'm just like, you know what? I don't think these little controllable drills I'm trying to have these athletes do are having any impact on what's actually happening when they run. And then track two, like as opposed to, to swimming, like when you're dealing with these forces that are rocketing back up into the body in, in fractions yeah, of a second, yeah. like the body's going to work how it needs to work to win <laughs> and not right. to get hurt. And so it's, it's humbling. And I yeah. just think just to bring it back, it's like a lot of coaches want to pick these very simple and highly controllable elements, but then 
the the turning point for me was when you get the timing gates out because the timing gates will settle all scores in that sense. Yeah. And yeah. I found that I had studied like the the t- the traditional controllable side so much, and I would like get these timing gates and have athletes run ten flies, and I would have them do all the controllable stuff, the knees up, the toes up, the all these like elements, and they would always be slower on that, like always on that 10 fly. And then whenever they sprinted how they wanted, they were always faster. And the common wording would be, oh, well, just keep doing this. Just, just keep doing this. And, you know, eventually, and I I will say from just a pure, like, like special strength element or an expansiveness of the body type element, maybe driving a little more external rotation in that early stance fate, like I could see that. But in terms of actual mechanics, no way. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I'm like long-winded, but I just wanted to draw a little bit yeah. more background on my side. So I'd be curious how that yeah, plays out sure. in swimming and that what you've seen. Yeah. And so I think it's kind of the same thing. It's, it's coaches are looking for aesthetic things that they can control and, and that they can see they can see a change in terms of like something is different. But like you said, that doesn't necessarily impact their actual performance. And like, you know, like in, in swimming, and it's probably not that dissimilar in, in running, is that you know, the big things that are really important to work on are, are subtle and not really super measurable or even obvious. And so like mm-hmm. an, one of them that it, it's like, a, they need to be aligned like at all times as they move through the water. So imagine like a Ferrari, you know, that that's a super streamlined car versus, you know, a Mack truck, you know, they mm-hmm. might have the same size engine, but one's going to move a whole lot faster. And then the other thing in swimming is now imagine that the, the shape of the Ferrari is constantly changing and it has to change in a way that keeps that same streamlined shape. And so how do you even talk about that to someone? Like that's, that's super complex and like, you can't even see it. And these things are really, really subtle. So that's something that's really hard to change, but if you can make a change in that area, that's going to make a huge difference. And then similarly, like, you know, you need to create propulsion and you need to move water backwards so that you move forward. And so a lot of times coaches will talk about like some of the shapes of their arms and stuff, but that doesn't mean that they're actually doing that. And so you need to kind of look at the outcomes. Like you said, if someone can take fewer strokes or they can swim faster, you know, whatever they're doing is creating more propulsion. And so like, it's more of, of an outcome focus versus I'm, I might not be able to see exactly what they're doing to make that happen. But if those numbers are getting better, I know that it is happening. And so you have to kind of let go of the ability to tell them what to do, but more put them in the situations where they can figure it out. And this is certainly true of, of running. It's like the timing and the rhythm, like you need to sync up some of these movements like right on time and right together. And if you can't do that, it's going to be off. And, and sometimes that timing is super, super subtle and you can't necessarily see it, but all of a sudden, you know, maybe they're a 10th or a couple second or a couple half, or excuse me, half a second faster. And it's almost not different to the eye. And then another, another big thing is like using momentum of the limbs as they swing. That's not like a position thing that you can control, but they have to figure out how to do that well. And so Again, it's it's a it's a subtle timing thing that you can't necessarily see, but when they get it right, it can make a huge difference. And again, so all like you really know that it went well is is the outcome was better. And so that's that's a different type of control that you have to let go of that you can't just say do this or oh, that looks better. It's like, well, here's the concept. How can I put you in a position so that you might be able to figure it out? And let's take a look at the outcomes and see if it worked. Yeah. Uh, so with people listening to this who might be familiar with like sprint drill elements that people want to control and say let's sprinting like dorsiflex the foot uh have your arm at this angle etc etc what are some things that you see like an equivalent in swimming uh, for example and then what would you do instead or maybe speak on your evolution there from moving 
because uh, I've certainly had my own evolution from getting away from yeah. some of those more like controllable elements that actually don't really help to right. that greater like engine and learning development of the athlete. So one example is, is, is people talk about, we'll just use that propulsion thing because it's pretty easy to conceptualize is that people talk about like, you know, the angle of their hand, where it's going in the angle of the elbow, like all these things about how they're, how they're moving their arm to, to move water backwards. And so you're trying to tell them what to do and how to do it. So in contrast, what you can do is you can, you know, put a, put a buoy in their legs so that they can't use their legs to, to compensate. And then you tell them they only have, can take X number of strokes. You tell them that they have to swim a certain speed. And now the only way to accomplish that goal is to basically create more, more propulsion. So you give them a, a, a puzzle to figure out mm-hmm. and you use con- constraints to take away some of the options that they could use to cheat it. And then basically the only way that they can solve that problem is to move in different ways. And so if they can accomplish the task successfully, you know that they're creating more propulsion. And so that's kind of the long game. Like they may not figure it out today. They may make a little bit of progress. They might not figure it out next week. They may not figure it out in a month, but whenever they do figure it out, you know that you've made a change that matters as opposed to, I can tell them to bend their elbow more. They might be able to do that in the next 10 seconds. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's actually impacted their performance. Whereas if I take the other approach, you know, you've given them this problem to solve, which might take them a month, you know, and that might sound like a long time, but if it makes a difference that directly improves performance and you have them for four years or eight years or whatever it is, it makes more sense and you can play the long game. The problem is, is that you can't tell them exactly what to do. And that can be uncomfortable for you as a coach. And that can also be uncomfortable for the athlete too, because they perceive you as the expert and they expect you to give them the answer. And so you can still guide them through the process, but they have to be comfortable and, and you have to be comfortable enough not having the answer and then still convey that confidence to them too. And that can be a challenge as well. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a little bit more about the constraints led approach. I had Rob Gray on not too long ago, and actually I'm really excited. I'm going to be having him on the show again here soon. And so I, it almost, to me, it seems like really the core of, of coaching an athlete is it's letting the body solve the problem with minimal interference or only the appropriate like even the word interference right like you don't you don't want to distract from their learning ability and one of the things that uh, tony holler a track coach and it's funny in a in another podcast i'd love to talk to you about like like i've thought about like the feed the cats and track is like i'm super minimalist it's like 40 minutes four days a week right and like i'm like what would the equivalent could you even do that and so you know that would be like my my yeah. other podcast, other podcast to talk about, you yeah, know, because yeah. like you said, you're swimming. It's, I mean, it's like if we just lived in the water, maybe it'd be a different story. That you know? would be different. Yeah. I think <laughs> so. so, anyways, um, but but Tony had said uh, with the 10 meter flies that that was like one of their core. I mean, that's a core workout of a lot of track yep. coaches is the 10 meter fly. And to me, that's it's just a constraint. It's a constraint. Right. You're going to build up and you're going to run through these two gates as fast as you can. And Tony would say, He's like, I can see them just trying different stuff each time. I can yeah, exactly. see them trying yeah. to figure it out. It's not like they are solving the problem. It's not like, oh, yeah, you have to run through it this way because then it, you won't run as fast. You have to like kind of see what works. Right. And I think that is um, like I, I, I've been on a really big kick lately of like truly trying to equate motor learning with like speed and power in the sense like people think they're two separate worlds it's like i'm going to train speed and power and weights and oh maybe if i have time i'll work on some technique or something but it's like the problem is is people have associated technique with those little controllable things that don't work and they do do the power work and see that help improve things and then the athletes like just self-organizing to kind of get their technique down so 
I, right. I feel like we could just get more out of it the more like consolidated we can make all of that. Yeah. Well, I think your training should be your technique work and, and that's where the constraints come in. And so you can, um, so just using that 10 meter fly time, if you made some other, like this wouldn't necessarily work, but say forever, whatever reason you wanted to run. I know every track coach is not going to like this. And so it's not going <laughs> to, it's not a perfect example, but it illustrates how you could do things. It's like, you're only allowed to take whatever four steps as you do this 10 meter fly. That's going to change how they run. <laughs> yeah. That will probably make their running worse. But if you if you have if you understand the constraints, you can push them to to solutions that you want. And so, you know, I'm not familiar enough with the sport to know how you could you know manipulate that. But like the example that I would say is so like in swimming, if I want people to get longer and get more out of each stroke, I can tell them they have to go as fast as they can, but they have a stroke limit. And so that's a constraint that they now have to figure out. And so they have to figure out how to swim fast, even though they have that yeah. constraint. And over time, they'll learn how to figure it out and they'll be able to take, they'll be able to get more out of each stroke and then do it at speed. And so you're still developing the, the strength, the speed and the power, but you've added a technical element to it. And so you can use as many constraints as you want to move them closer and closer to different options or different movement solutions that you think are going to be effective. And so if you don't have to use any constraints, like so, so super great athletes, you can just tell them to run the, run the sprint and they'll figure it out for themselves. Some other people might need to be pushed a little bit. And so you might need to give them a couple more constraints to help them get closer. You know, I think, I think I've seen people like, and you may or may not like this exercise, but I don't understand the intent of it. It's like the people that are, um, they push out the back too much when they run. So you have them hold something in the front and they kind of can't push out the back. They have to be mm -hmm. more, more front side. And so that's an example of, and then if you make them run fast, that's going to one develop the strength and the speed to, to move like that. But it, it's also going to improve their technique too. Yeah. So that's, that's an outcome that you're looking for. Yeah. And yeah, I, I agree with the, um, I, I do think that once we understand that athletes, that the athlete is solving this problem on their own, that is a huge component of like that 10 meter fly or whatever that right. then, yeah, adding those subtle constraints onto it can be really helpful. Like I, I've really enjoyed. And the, the only problem with this is I think that, and maybe it just demands some more thinking. I mean, that's part of, or that's a big that's reason. The catch. Yeah. That's the catch is you really have to understand what's going on because you could, so, so I don't know what's going on. So I'm like, oh, people need to run. They need to get bigger stride length to run mm -hmm. faster. So I'm like, all right, you can only take five strides with, or four strides or whatever within that 10, but that's going to, because, because I don't really understand what's going on. That's going to ruin their, ruin yeah, their run. It's a little too, yeah, it's too gonna, much, too much of a stretch. Yeah, they're, right. They're going to, they're going to bound too much. So you really have to understand what's actually happening as these people move and then know where to make the, where to make the adjustment and where to place the constraints so that you can get kind of what you want out of it. And so if you don't understand it, you're probably going to make it worse. And so I think one of the perceptions is that, you know, the constraint letter coat or that type of um, approach is lazy coaching because you're not interacting and telling them what to do. But in some ways you have to understand it at a much deeper level, because if you don't, you're not going to use constraints effectively and you're going to make the situation way worse. Yeah. I don't want to skip ahead too much because I may have written this down. Um, and I do want to stand this constraints and like kind of linking some swim constraints into ground-based right. constraints. Because I know my time in swimming uh, at UC Berkeley had a massive impact on how I viewed motor learning by observing the coaches there. I mean, it was really, really helpful for me. Because I think that we, I mean, it's just looking at how ideas emerge in anything. A lot of times it's from something outside of what we're used to. It's watching nature or, you know, learning yeah. from a different yeah. field. And so I was like, well, this is really cool. This really is giving me some good ideas for what I'm going to do on the track. And, but I, I will come back to that. I just, I do want to mention 
uh, you had an article and it was about Anatoly Bondarchuk and the, the push the hammer, right? And like, yeah. and Kibway Johnson talked about this because he couldn't even understand what <laughs> Bondarchuk was saying. But uh, go, go into that a little bit because I, I, I think that's important because, yeah, people will, think, oh, will say, oh, well, you're supposed to be like, like as if coaching is saying a bunch of things. And I mean, yes, there is communication, absolutely. And there is verbal communication, but it's a lot more than just standing there and spouting off for, you know, a minute on the technical, the fine technical points is something every rep the individual does. And any, anyways, right. I'd like you to go in on that push the hammer article and a little bit of the yeah. process behind so, that. So the story, I think I heard it on, uh, I think it was a podcast that Derek Evely did. And like, basically the story was that Bonner Chuck had one cue. He was just like, push the hammer. And so people would just, they didn't know what it meant really. And they, they would just keep throwing and throwing. He's just be like, nope, nope, nope. And you just like push the hammer. And then he was talking about like some kid that developmental kid and like he was just like throwing the, the hammer like into the cage every time. And then, and then like a year later, Derek came back and he's like, man, that kid looks good. And Bonner Chuck's like, yeah, he pushes the hammer or something like that. And so basically like you focus on the one or two things that matter and you have to ignore everything else. You don't give them feedback about anything else. And you just, you just make sure that they get that one thing. And again, kind of like with the constraints, if you take that approach, you have to know what the fundamental thing is. And then you have to apply that and then focus on that and ignore kind of everything else. And so when you do that, it's not a quick fix because it may take them a year to figure out what that is. But once they do, they've really solved the problem. And so in the short term, you may feel like you're getting more out of it by kind of telling people exactly what to do. But in reality, you, you're not really addressing the real problem. And I think if you set up kind of your year identifying these one or two things that need to change. And then you just go after it big time from the beginning and you set up your plan to fix these things. Like it might take six months, but that's how long the season is. And if you can make that one massive change that makes a direct impact on their performance, then it's worth it. And so I think it's kind of like the short-term fix versus the long-term real solution. And so, you know, if you're going to address some of these things that are really hard to fix, you need a, a plan and you need to be consistent with it. And you need to give them a lot of time to figure it out because if you don't, it's not really going to work out. If you haven't heard of the Elastic Essentials course or seminar, I wanted to quickly fill you in on this transformative educational opportunity. This past year, I put a comprehensive course together on the evolution of my training system, and it's called Elastic Essentials. I designed this to help coaches deeply understand the principles by which human beings produce effective athletic movement. I've spent many years trying to figure out why athletes were getting stronger in the gym, but they might not have matched that strength with their explosive and dynamic abilities. And I've experienced this both as a track coach and a strength coach, and it led me on a journey to really dig in on those key elements of explosive, ballistic, and quality athletic movement in a way that really gives athletes or leads athletes to their full potential. In the Elastic Essentials course, I highlight my evolved view on plyometrics, sprinting, strength training. I go in depth on the foot and lower leg dynamics to a level far beyond anything I've put out on this podcast or social media. And I also speak on how I totally shifted my approach to maximizing key body weight elements that not only helps athletes move better, but also helps them to reach their athletic strength potential. The course is tied together in a detailed programming module, and it also offers five awesome bonus interviews on top of the main curriculum. Not only will this course accelerate your evolution as a coach, but it's also worth certified CEUs for organizations such as the NSCA and NASM. Coaches who have taken this course have said it's the best con ed money they've ever spent. 
They've said they would pay multiples of the listed price, such as saying they would pay $1,000 for this course. But you can get this course right now for a fraction of that. And you can head to justflysports.com to check it out and sign up today. Also, in addition to the online course, I'm hosting an in-person live seminar July 22nd and 23rd in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can check that out as well on justflysports.com. Okay, let's get back to the show. Yeah, and I'd imagine that like even the push the hammer, it's almost, it's kind of, um, I don't know if ambiguous is the word, like it's not, yeah, I feel exactly, like it's not yeah. super concrete, like uh, all the, yeah. all the it's cues. Not bend your elbow to the 90 yes. degrees, it's like do this big thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not like he's sitting there saying, all right, well, you, this angle, this limb and this angle, right. it, like, no, push the hammer. And I think that that that's such a an epitome of kind of what we started yeah. that ed smith quote that that um it's almost like these like like a zen riddle kind of and you need to put in the work and then like one day you just like oh that's what they meant by by yeah, that right. saying now as a coach too you don't just sit there and just say push the hammer push the hammer you have to give them exercises so that they have the opportunity to yeah. learn whatever that is and the better you are at designing exercises that help them figure that out the sooner yes. that they can get that and then especially w- what's different Two, it's like one, they don't just have to figure it out how to do it once. They have to be able to do it over and over and over again. And especially in the context of swimming, now you need to train it so that they can do it fast, so that they can do it for long periods of time. And then they can do it when they're tired, like fatigued in, in a racing situation. And they have to be able to do it in, in, in situations of psychological pressure. So even if like you say you've got a six month season, even if they learn how to do it within two months, now you still have four months where you can actually make that skill bulletproof. And so again, like just because you've exposed them, like if you just tell them, bend the elbow or whatever, that's like step one of, of, of a 10 step process to make sure that that's ready for competition. And so I think that's what the other thing is you have to keep it down to one or two things because it takes forever to make these things ready for, for, for competition. Because again, you have to train it physically. They have to know they can do it and it has to be resilient under like if they're feeling pressure are they just going to revert back to what they always did? Or is that thing locked in there so that it's, it's going to happen when it matters too? Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And I, yeah, I just, I really like, like, I just keep thinking about the, yeah, like trying to be in like Bondra Chuck's like coaching group and just hearing like push the, I mean, I talked to him one time at a, a seminar and I couldn't even understand what he was saying. So I yeah. understand like, I think, the, I think the key thing is that you have to be good at putting them in positions where they can learn it too. Yeah. He did that. You, yeah. He had like, to do it, yeah. most kids are not going to be able to figure it out. And that's where like the constraints stuff comes in is you can put them in situations where they have the opportunity to figure out what you're really talking about. And then that's like, because if you just tell someone to do something like, you know, if, if you just tell me run 10, five, and I'm like, well, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why aren't you running? Yeah. Right. yeah. Run it harder. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. But if you, if, if, if you put me in situations where, you know, I can learn the skills necessary or I can figure out what that means, then that's a little bit different. Yeah. And if you look at like Bonder Chuck's programming, he would have the main exercise, but a yeah. lot of times it was not like, it would be like the 18 pound hammer, the 14 pound hammer. It was a constraint of the hammer. And then yeah. he'd have right. further constraints, That's you know, stuff. like heavy right. wines and stuff yeah. that right. just help people learn it on their own all the while with this kind of like somewhat Concept ambiguous, you'll push yeah. the hammer, but it's not like this, it's not this exact, it's not like, oh yeah, do this and your angle must be exactly this and exactly right. that. Yeah. So. And so he had a system for helping people learn how to do that. And that's why it works. Yeah. So, okay. So in latest swimming. So, uh, I mean, cause I'm thinking like, okay. And I, I've you know come up with 
plenty of constraints as well for running and jumping. Um, but I always, every time I hear about swim workouts, it always inspires me and it helps me to think about others. I mean, a constraint that I had done for a while, and I will say there's something about swimming, like let's say it's a 25 yard pool and like, it's just something about that shorter space and the wall. And like, you can put a, you know, a 12 and a half, you know, yard marker. Mm -hmm. And like, it's always this symmetrical thing where you can do a lot of different like constraints. I feel like pretty easily sometimes, I mean, a track, you know, tracks running is pretty straightforward. You go uphill, downhill, you know, over little mini hurdles. Like, I don't think it's actually not that terribly complicated, but for the sake of like a 10 fly, I mean, you could say, I want you to run over, like these little like four inch mini hurdles while you do it. Yeah. That does become challenging because you have athletes with all sorts of different leg lengths. And right. again, you don't want to make it like, so they're like crazy over striding and bounding to cover right. that distance. Right. It has to be in their scope. And that's why that does make it hard, but I'm like, okay, there's gotta be an easier and, way and to and do that's that. that's a good right? point is that, it, is that constraints are individual too. And so you have to be able to adjust them for the person. And so you can't necessarily give an entire group one constraint you may have to mod- you're going to have to modify that for, for each person because their individual abilities are different and so that interacts with everything too yeah for sure it's like you said like it's fun to do constraints but that constraint can can get out of control and so yeah. i am curious yeah. even with like like with swimming is there yeah. a, a range for let's just say you're going to do 20 strokes to complete uh, this is te- this is testing my memory very badly but let's just say <laughs> a 50 i don't know maybe that's way too little or i don't know like 20 strokes for a 50 I mean, is there, does there get to a point where it's just not enough? I mean, cause you could just kick the whole thing, right? Like, yeah. um, so, what is your thought yeah, with like that balance? I, I think it just has to do with what your intention is. And you have to understand, again, you have to understand what's really happening so that you understand the effects that are intended and the effects that are maybe unintended. So an easy one is you can limit how many strokes that are allowed to take, and that's going to probably push them towards getting more out of each stroke. You can keep it honest by giving them a speed requirement too. And that, that's a kind of a dual constraint, yeah. which makes sure that they're still doing it in a way that's conducive to speed. But yeah, you could take you could take away too many strokes and then basically they have to kick through it. But you can do that if you really want to stress their legs. And so if that's your intention, then that can be effective because you know what you're looking for and you know when you've gone too far. Now, so like if, if you have them use the legs, there's still a rhythm component that that needs to be there. And so you're watching to make sure that they still have some sense of rhythm. If they lose their rhythm, you've given it too far or they're trying to do the wrong thing. And so you have to know what you want it to look like. And then you have to know what it looks like when you've gone too far. And then you have to understand if it's because the kid isn't executing it properly, which is, you know, it's it's certainly a possibility, or if that's beyond their capabilities. And if it's beyond their capabilities, you need to scale it back or, or scale it differently. Now, if they're just executing it poorly and they haven't figured out how to solve it, that's when your job as a coach kind of, you need to encourage them. It's like, all right, what have you tried? And like, you don't even necessarily give them the answer, but you kind of talk them through it. And you just like, Hey man, you can do this. You haven't figured it out yet, but let's keep trying. And so that's where your job becomes is one, watching the constraints and managing them to make sure that they're, they're still appropriate. And then two, helping people work through that because it can be frustrating when they don't figure it out. And so you have to encourage them to keep trying. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about, like you said, the, the speed, as soon as you put a clock on anything, that's when it really keeps yeah. it honest. And that's what I've, right. I'm, I'm such a big fan of that with land stuff, because again, like it, yeah. it tells you if your constraint or whatever coaching you're doing is right. carrying value. And again, like, I'm not going to say that like, just because, you know, I was saying before, like, okay, well he having dorsiflexing and knees up and, oh, you're not getting faster. Well, 
just keep i mean again there there can be some things that do take a little bit to learn but i mean i think that if it's just nothing's helping then you have to be like okay this isn't helping this doesn't fit with how elite athletes move let's move on but what i I guess what i'm saying is how often do you bring in those speed like keep it honest things and like off-season versus like pre-season versus in-season tell me a little bit about how you might use constraints where you're using them that's just purely for learning this is just purely let's let's just explore uh, maybe that's a good division, right? It's for exploring or it's let's put the hammer down and see what this actually is doing yeah. from a time perspective. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about those, so, the balance there. With the timing thing, it's more of like you you have this task and your goal over time is to get better at it. And so, and that indicates that you're executing the task better. And the task I've given you is one that's going to help you learn a certain skill. And so if you can execute it faster over time, that means you're getting better at it. And so it's not always like, I mean, I have some probably in, in my mind, some ranges of where they should be, but my, my goal is mostly for improvement. So if I can, if I say you're only you're, like, again, we're just going back to the simple thing. You're only allowed to take 10 strokes per lap and we're going to keep doing those over time and say you, you started out, I'm just making up numbers, but like you started out in 30 seconds and now you can do it in 25 seconds. That means you're getting more out of each of those strokes because you're able to execute the, the, the whole repetition, you know, five seconds faster. And so it's always not like one, it gives them a goal to work on, which makes it much more interesting because they have an outcome that they can say, Oh yeah, I just did it three seconds faster or whatever. And then two, it's adding a performance element of it. So it's not just executing the movements, you're executing the movements with the intention of doing them really, really well. And so that's, that's important. I think from an exploration standpoint, I think as soon as you get, as soon as they get the right idea, we're training it because again, like it takes so long to, to really stabilize that and to make it bulletproof that you have to start as soon as you can. And a lot of times the training aspect of it makes it better too. And so a lot of times the exploration stuff, again, I'm trying to design tasks that move them into the situation where they, where, where they can figure it out pretty quickly. And once they kind of do, then it's moving on. And, and I think part of the exploration, when they're trying to figure out how to go faster within those constraints, that is exploration. Yeah. It may not be just like, hey, what does it feel like? Hey, I'm just kind of figuring out what I'm doing here. It's like, no, that, that's the puzzle that they need to solve. And because it, everything ultimately comes down to speed, you have to be executing your skills in a way that produces performances. Yeah. So for example, as soon as they like, like, let's say you're doing like a pool buoy between the knees or something or the, the stroke count, like as soon as yeah. they kind of got the idea of the stroke count, like yeah. then you're now putting a timer we're on. trying to do it better. Yep. Okay. Yep. So yeah, now you, you're using the timer as it's almost like, I think of it too, is, I mean, when I say this to some people just think of like their mind will just go to dumb stuff like, oh, we're going to get as complex as possible. So do like stand on a balance ball while juggling or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, and like where it's like too many wheels to manage. Right. But like, I feel like like a good drill, a good movement is going to push the athlete to the edge of their relevant coordination potential. Relevant yeah. meaning it's the same basic uh, right, sensations exactly. yep. you're getting in your sport. It's not like you're, you're not necessarily staying on an overly unstable surface or a bunch of banded stuff that isn't relevant. But it's like, as far as the relevant information that comes in from your sport, the more you can handle, then the better. And, and let's yeah. really push that. Yeah. And, and when, when, when you time stuff, it doesn't always have to be, it's not always maximal. It's just you know, it needs to be at this level because it's, you're practicing at a, at a certain level. It's fast enough to, like you said, to be relevant. It doesn't have to be maximal every time, but you're practicing it and you're doing it at a, at a level that 
that's conducive to, to making progress and it's slightly challenging, but it's not maximally challenging because if you just maximally challenge everything, like you just can't get enough repetitions. And also too, it's like just psychologically daunting to have to just every single thing you do is just, you know, maximal effort and, and you're going to be judged on your performance. Like that's pretty, most people cannot handle too much of that. Yeah. You know, as you're talking, it makes me think about, I'm like, we're on land because this stuff really get put to the test. And the one thing that comes to my mind, and I'm sure this exists in other areas, but is uh, the hurdles in track and field, but specifically the long hurdles, like the 400 hurdles, because mm-hmm. a lot of times the athletes will be like, all right, you took this many steps between, you know, th- this hurdle and this hurdle, like you were this mm-hmm. many steps between this hurdle and you can play with those constraints. You can say, okay, this time, you know, we're going to take, we're going to take 15 steps between this time we'll do 16 or, right. or whatever. Right. And it was crazy, like when I watched, um, and again, like the, the track was so insanely bouncy in um, the, the last Tokyo Olympics. I mean, Randy Huntington is like, yeah, I have this ball and like I bounced it on tracks and like the, the track there was insane. But like when I watched Karsten Warholm drop that 400 world record by a second about, like his strides were so insanely long coming off of those hurdles. Yeah. I could barely believe that he was actually still managing sprinting doing that right and and i think about you know it'd be interesting to run almost like a regression on some level of or some sort of analysis on looking at like just raw 400 meter or raw sprint improvement times for 400 meter hurdlers versus just straight up 400 meter runners like all right maybe like 10 meter fly or or 30 meter fly or some you know all right you came in and you kind of trained the same but but when it came to your like specific training, one group trained over hurdles and maybe they had more, in- there's more intention too. There's like, yeah, yeah, they have to run a certain, yeah, they're forced to move in different ways. Yeah. It's more interesting. I should say too. It's yeah. just, unless you're right. really just interested in like, how do you run while you're tired, which is interesting. I've gotten more interested in that. I don't think, I don't think those athletes find that particularly interesting in, in some senses right. of it. They just want to do really well and they're driven, but I like, mean, fatigue's a constraint too. So yeah. like, you know, if you're, if you're asked to perform a certain task and then you're asked to perform that task tired, like you're going to learn different things because yeah. so, so another, another way, like I would, I would use constraints. Is so, so say I expect you to do a certain effort at race speed, but this time I'm going to, before you do that race effort, I'm going to do a lot of stuff that really challenges your legs and your legs are tired. And now you need to do mm-hmm. that race effort at, at race speed, but you don't have the legs to do it that you normally would. And so you're going to have to one, figure out how to do that, how to move effectively when your legs are tired. And then you're also going to have to kind of reorganize your stroke a little bit to make sure that that happens. And then conversely, you could do the opposite where their upper body is pretty tired and then they're asked to perform it at, at some sort of, you know, race, race specific task. And then again, they have to figure it out and they have to manage those subtle timing things and they have to manage those subtle alignment issues so that they can figure that out. And, you know, what you're doing is you're changing the constraints within the person because they don't have as much gas because they're tired. And they're tired in specific areas. And so when you do that, that's another form of constraints. And you're asking them to perform these tasks, but you're doing it in a compromised state. And so that's going to affect and promote promote learning too. Yeah. I know right off the bat or very early in my just watching swim practices, I I remember uh, watching the practices and seeing like things like that, like the kick sets that would make the legs tired. And then you have to be, you can't use your legs as much or you have to use them in a different way or whatnot. And I was like, oh, I was compensate a- with the upper body or, or something. You just yeah. have to figure it out. Yeah. And I was a little, at the time I was a little jealous at this because my current understanding at that time was that like, let's just say running like, well, the arms are, it's all legs and the arms are kind of irrelevant. And then I started yeah. to learn more from a Darian bar and got into some one arm running type work. And I was like, you know what? I mean, maybe the arms are not as important as swimming, but they are still important. And I found like one arm constraints are working constraints that way were actually really valuable 
in upright right. running. But I, I, I will say, I think that swimming, you do get to push that constraint a little bit more than, yeah. but if you're creative in land-based work, you can, but you have to look at it more, I think on the muscle, like the micro level, for example, even as you were talking there, I was thinking about, there's, I, I probably shared, this book isn't in production anymore. It's not being sold. And no one even knows who wrote it, but this like DB Hammer book and there was like these emails associated with it. And one of the things this coach was into was like icing the calves before you do like jumps or depth jumps. And I think the reason that that was done was as a constraint. I mean, I don't think it was outright said like this, or maybe it was, but it was a constraint that basically now your gastroxoleus complex, you're not going to get as much out of it. And you still have to do these jumps. So what are you going to do? Well, you actually just have to be even more elastic through the lower leg. Yeah. Like you, like, and, yeah. and you've, we've all seen these people who can jump out of the gym and I mean, their calves are still strong, certainly, but their their calf muscle mass might not be massive, but it's just that tendon and elastic and foot strength action. Or like, look at like, you know, a horse's lower leg or something, right? Like, so yeah. it, it's basically this constraint that's, it's, it's just, I think, a little bit more on the micro. It's a little bit more subtle in some places um, when we are on the land. But I was also thinking about, uh, you know, Bruce Shexier, you, you were mentioning him. Like, I think he has said, like, when you have that fatigue, like the, the proprioception has to be challenged a little bit more. Like if yeah, you did like squats, sure. like heavy, deep squats and your quads are fatigued and you're doing drills, it challenges your proprioception. But even you know, even just doing heavy squats, like something that kind of trashes your quads and then you have to sprint, that might not be a bad thing because maybe you shouldn't be using yeah. your quads so much. So why don't you right. trash your quads and trash your calves and then go sprint? <laughs> right. I, I just so, wish people would, ex- that, those are constraints that are so cool to explore. You know, and yeah, you so can like, be creative. An like example, that. like, and, and I don't know if this this would work, but like you could do like 60 seconds of really fast jump roping. You, you kind of specifically fatigue the, the calves and then you go run whatever, a 200 at, you know, race speed for whatever, for an 800 meter runner, something that they can manage. And they're going to have to figure that out when their calves are a little bit dead and they're not going to be quite as reactive as they normally would. And how are you going to figure out how to, how to hold your, your stride together and how to make that manage or make that work. Or like, conversely, you could have them do 30 pushups and then go run up and then your arms aren't going to be doing what they want. You want them to do. And how are you going to figure out how to, again, keep the timing together? How do you hold it together? How do you find a way to make it happen anyway? And so like, those are ways that short-term fatigue can be really useful for challenging skills too, because you're going to move differently and you're going to have to find a solution too. And and a lot of times those are solutions that probably are going to matter in races. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's constantly, it's, something that's causing you to have to constantly solve problems and evolve too. Exactly. Yep. And so that actually brings me to the next question or thought I had for you, which is, uh, maybe this can be a twofold question, but let's just start with this is boredom tolerance. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, like I love the constraints and I think maybe that's why, I mean, I think this is like this for a lot of people, but for me, especially like playing basketball is one of the best possible workouts I could do because it's like, there's all sorts of constraints and there is like levels of fatigue, like you're tired and then you still have to sprint down the court and still jump and, and things when you might have muscles at like, I don't know, just arbitrary, like 70%, like your quads are at 70%, still got to jump yeah. and block the shot, you know, these, these but, types of things. So first, just tell me about maybe like boredom tolerance and then it, how you look at that with what athletes, what is the optimal workout for each athlete given how much engagement they require throughout the training? Yeah. So I think, I think you get the spectrum. So you get kids that will literally, I'll do the same thing every day. I don't care. You know, I want my routine. I want to do it over and over and over again, because, you know, for whatever reason. And then, you know, you have kids that they can do the same things over and over again, as long as they continue to improve. And so it's like, for me personally, like I can, as long as I'm getting better, 
quantitatively, like I see myself getting faster from day to day or week to week. Like I can do that. I don't mind doing the same things over and over again, but like, as soon as I stop seeing progress, like I hate it. Yeah. And then there's other kids that just have like no tolerance for repeating things. And I think what's probably more true than repeating things on a given day, it's when the days seem to get consistently the same. And so I think that that's what can really cause problems for people. And so I think when you have themes to your day and you only do certain things on, on certain days and you don't do these other activities, and then the next day you can do something else that's different and, and there's contrast from day to day, I think that that can make a huge difference in terms of how much people can tolerate repetitiveness. And, and unfortunately, like with, with most sports, there's a lot of repetition. Like that just is what it is. That's from a training standpoint, from a skill perspective, it, it is. And I think that that's an example of where, I, where like the high-low program, I think, works in the sense that, you know, beyond the other benefits that people talk about, I just think there's a psychological contrast from day to day. And I think most people respond pretty well to that because it's just something totally different. It just feels different and it doesn't feel like I'm doing the same thing every day. And, and, and in swimming, what you can do is you can change the type of training, you can change the strokes, you can change the training equipment. Like there's a lot of ways to kind of mix that up so that something that feels really monotonous doesn't. And I think that's what's kind of nice about swimming is that you can do the same thing a lot of different ways. Whereas I feel with running, there's not a whole lot of options. It's like, if I want this type of work, I'm pretty much stuck with, if I want to do 10 200s running, there aren't that many things that are just like 10 200s that are pretty much the same. Whereas in swimming, I can get a lot of different things that are probably pretty similar. Yeah. Well, especially with that 25 yard pool, like you have things every day yeah right. yeah it'd be as if you're running those 200s and there's like the you know, hurdle space at 25 yards right. and you have to do yeah. something you yeah. can now so do like the first 50 meters is one way the yes. second 50 meters is another way yeah yeah and i just feel like that makes it i did i do actually but it's also it, it outside of having hurdles it's it's like the constraints are just a little less solid in some ways. Like I, I really enjoy doing like uh like sprint float sprint type stuff and not just like a, a typical sprint float sprint would be like all right, 20 meter sprint, float 20, sprint 20, like stuff like that. And I, then a, a Darian Barr in my time with him, like he'd get pretty like tight with it. Like it might be 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. And you could do that right. all the way out to 80 or something like that. And then you could stretch it out. Like it could be 15, 15, 15, then 20, 20, like stuff like that. But I, I like doing like 20 meter sprint, 20 meter speed skip, 20 meter sprint, like, or you could turn around and run backwards for a little bit of that, you know? And I, I feel like, that's definitely more interesting. <laughs> yeah. But and, uh, and, and, yeah. and that's where you add, like, so if, if you've got all these constraints that you want to use, like you can just add them in. And so you can do whatever, 10 200s, or you can do 10 200s, but they're all, they're all done with different variations that challenge some of those skills that you're working on. And so that way you build the skill work into the fitness development. And I, I think that's a little bit easier to do in the pool. But when you do that, you're always giving them something to engage with as opposed to like, all right, it's time to get the work in. Here yeah. we go. Like, just just do this. There's a specific intent to everything that they do. And I think most people, when you give them something to work on, and it obviously has relevance to accomplishing their goals, most people don't have much problem engaging with that. It's when it's super repetitive. Mm -hmm. There's not a clear connection to what, they're to what their goals are, that it becomes a lot more challenging for people to, to manage that. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com. SimplyFaster.com is a fantastic coaching resource 
not only on the level of their blog and all the information they put out, but also on the level of their online store. With the click of a button, you can see and purchase the technology that is utilized by so many of the world's great coaches. In simplyfaster.com's online store, you can have access to training technology such as blood flow restriction training, timing systems, including the free lap timing system, bar speed tracking devices, a variety of resistance training machines, such as the K-Box, and also Kaiser training units, which Kaiser training units being strongly recommended by sprint coach Randy Huntington, for example. You'll also get access to motorized sprint training units, such as the 1080 Sprint, force plates, and much more. You can check that all out by heading to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Let's get back to the show. Yeah. What's your thoughts on, I mean, because I know this is true in both track and uh, swimming is like coaches who do have a good level of success with what you just call more like meat and potatoes workouts. It's just, here's Mm -hmm. just straight sets. You know, it's not necessarily in itself very interesting. Um, I think where I've seen that in track, it's a very like, there's always like a tradition. There's a powerful training environment. People believe in the system and they go, they, you know, it's like a machine. They're in their line. They get the work done. They got the times read out. Like, what are your thoughts on what it takes for that kind of work to be successful? And like, is it sustainable? Like at some point, do you need to start doing something more interesting or just, just thoughts on like people who do still are successful with more of those, like just standardized, I guess, I don't know a good word for it, but like standard meat and potatoes type things. I think there's, there's two issues that you brought up is, is one, the cultural thing when it's just, this is the way we do things. Then people just almost feel like they're doing something for, for someone or they're, they're behaving for something bigger than themselves. And and that can be just exciting for them. And they're just like, yeah, I might not want to do this, but this is what we do. And so it just kind of becomes a part of who they am. And so I think that can take people a long ways. The other thing I think is that if you give people success and they see results from what they're doing, they'll mm-hmm. do pretty much anything. And so I think when you're getting results and people are running faster, people will continue to do that. I think what, when you get into trouble is people have much less tolerance for doing things that aren't particularly enjoyable when there's no results to be had by mm-hmm. them. And so I think as long as you have a strong culture and as long as what you're doing is actually helping people get faster or improve, I think you can definitely get a- away with a lot of that. It just becomes a problem if you have cultural issues and there's not the culture that if you're one of those quote unquote meat and potatoes guys and you go to it, you go to a new school and you're just like, this is the way we're doing it. And like the kids are not into that at all. And there's no culture for it. It's going to be a lot more challenging. And especially, and if you do that type of work and you don't see results, people are, they're not going to want to do it because I'm doing all this stuff. This is just miserable and I get no tangible result from it. So what, you know, most people are not, you know, they're not just good. They're not gluttons for punishment. Yeah. It's interesting. Actually, I was, there's an interesting thought I have with that is the, where I went to graduate school, the coach, my first year there as an assistant coach on staff, I was like 23 as my first coaching gig. And the coach who had been there for like 20 years was hyper successful, won a ton of national championships with that meat and potatoes type mentality, especially in the fall or off season training. It was all meat and potatoes, like all longer stuff. And and yeah. they had had so much success there. And then a new coach came in that was like speed from day one. And yeah. it's funny because a lot of modern track coaching now would kind of agree more with that kind of like, let's just be fast more often. But they they didn't do that well with it. They really wanted a lot of that old stuff because they had had so much success with it. Yeah. And I just thought it was really interesting to see that, you know, w- when this is the culture, this is how we do things around here. 
you know, and like, and I've been through my, I've talked about my own experiences with that on this podcast. I don't do well with that kind of stuff, the longer just meat and potatoes. But you know what, if I was in that environment, maybe I would have, you know, (laughs) like, so it's just interesting to think about. I think that's an interesting point too, is just in general, you have to be careful about taking away people's identity as athletes or, and as a group. And so like, if you have an athlete that just loves lifting weights and thinks that it's, you know, super helpful for them. And like, you're just kind of like, this is making you worse. Like, and there there was a a pretty famous swimmer who was just gigantic. This dude was jacked and he looked like an NFL linebacker, like, I'm not like not exaggerating. And then he got, he got moved to, to this other coach. And the coach is like, dude, you're just, you're lifting too much. You're way too big. And the guy swam way slower. Yeah. And then the coach was like, all right, well, we'll go back to what we'll go back to doing the quote unquote stupid stuff. And the guy went even faster. I bet. So, (laughs) so like, you know, it's one thing, it's like that just worked for him or two, it's what he believed in. And like, you, you you try to take someone's athletic identity away from them. It's going to be a problem. Yeah. Now you, if you're, if you're good at it, you just kind of like, massage them <laughs> closer to where you want to be and let them think that they're still yeah. getting what they're used to and just kind of mitigate the downsides. But, you know, you know, to me, that's exactly what happened in that, at that school is like, you, you took away the, what this, this group, their identity, you took it away, not you, but the, yeah. the coach took it away from <laughs> yeah. them. And all of a sudden, you know, there wasn't something to fill the void. Yeah. I I've seen that with the lifting as well too. Cause I, my pendulum's kind of swung back and forth, you know, on that, especially like, I would say when I really started, um, in my time as a college, like strength coach full-time, like it was like, you know, it was like at first it was like, uh, really be, you know, minimal effective dose on strength. And then you started to see that some of those kids really like, they didn't just want it. Like I started to really genuinely think, you know, they need this and yeah. maybe these kids do, you know, I kind of have my like 80%, like they don't, don't really lift too much above 80% kind of thing going on. And some of those kids, like if they didn't, I think they were going to like, it was so meaningful for them. They had to do yeah. it. And so, yeah. but like you said, you know, you, you, you kind of have it that you, you're constantly trying to keep everything in perspective and having conversations right. with them and, and eventually they'll learn it too. They'll be like, okay, yeah, I, I think maybe at this point, maybe there was too much emphasis on it. And this is the balance, this is the new balance, you know, like the yeah. balance of things or whatever. But yeah, you, you always have to be aware of that stuff. And I, I learned, yeah, I definitely learned through experience through that for sure. Right. And I, I, that, that like, uh, it reminds me of, a uh, I think. Uh, I don't remember exactly the contact, but it was Charlie Francis. And like, so it's like, you get a new athlete. It's like, well, what were they doing before? Like, you have to know that because that informs, like that shows you what they were successful mm-hmm. with. Um, and then you just kind of like start to move from that basis. And so like when, when, you know, we get athletes as, as college coaches and, you know, if, if they've had this one thing and they've had a lot of success with it, you have to be kind of careful just all right, this is what you're doing now because sometimes that works well and but sometimes it doesn't and then you've got a big problem because it's just not what they're used to yeah i i totally agree and that's where again it's like it's a it's the control thing it's like a, as a coach do you want to say well this is how i do it and i'm going right. to control you <laughs> versus right. no like you're kind of a in in many ways i mean yes there is an active coaching element in, in creating this culture and setting up the framework but there's also this like you are an ambassador to the athlete's own journey to right. excel on their own highest level. So if you're just going to act right. like, oh, this is just how we do it. And I mean, I think right. what happens is a lot of the athletes who don't like it will just leave, you know, go to a right. coach with a different program right. who like, who does it more like they like it or whatever. But, you know, and, and if you have an influx of really talented kids, then, you know, maybe that doesn't matter. But I don't know. I guess I'd, I'd always like to, you know, to me, coaching is solving, you know, problems and helping every kid get better. And so that's not, that's to me, that's not an example of that. Yeah. 
So with all that said, Andrew, tell me a little bit about, so take me through a practice. Like how do you create engagement for those, for swimmers in your swim practice? Like tell me about like the warm up process. Uh, how do the main sets come together? Is there like, like warm ups for those sets that fit with what you're doing or how you manage constraints? Uh, tell me about what, what I'm on deck. Tell me what I'm going through for a practice with engagement in mind. Yeah. So I think what, what, what needs to be clear from the beginning is just what, what, what is, you know, you kind of have a theme for the day. And so everyone understands the, the general type of work that's going to be done more or less what's kind of be going to be focused on and, and what, what, uh, the ultimate goal is. And so then I think it just starts from there. So you just start working from the beginning on, on activities that are, that are relevant to what that is. And so, you know, you just start it with low scale down versions of it and you just kind of crescendo and you just kind of get more and more to it. And then you're just, you know, each thing kind of builds upon the one before that. And then you're doing what ultimately is, is the most important stuff for that day. And so, you know, it, and you know, when, when I'm setting it up and it's kind of like, all right, what, what, situations do I want to put them in? What skills do we need to be focused on? And then it's just a matter of constructing in a way that they can, they can um, be challenged and be challenged appropriately. And so I think along the way too, is that you've kind of got these checkpoints so that you can see where people are at. And so, you know, I think a lot of times we're doing stuff that like, you know, the, the speed kind of descends as we go through the, the, the warm up and the, and the first portion of it. So you can kind of get a sense of where they're at and you're kind of talking to them and, and, you know, you're, you're measuring performance and you're just seeing, well, that looked a lot harder than the performance showed, or that looked way easier than the performance showed, or their body language is way better than it usually is, or it's way worse than that. And then you're kind of seeing where people are at and you're, you know, maybe not always super consciously, but you're just making a decisions as, as to whether or not you need to adjust anything or, or adjust for someone, or you're just going to let it ride. And then as you're going through it, it's just constantly kind of talking to the kids, not so much telling them what to do, but asking them what you know, what are they doing? You know, what are you working on? What, what, what are you struggling with? What do you have? What, you know, how did that one go? What did you think? And, and I think that keeps them engaged because they know that you're going to be asking and to it, it's, it's a subtle way of reminding them what needs to be worked on as opposed to like, do this, do that, do this, do that. Because, you know, if you ask them, Hey, how's your breathing going? <laughs> like, they're going to think about that versus just being like, your breathing is bad. Yeah. So even if like, even if that's the message that you want to send, it's a much subtler way of doing that. Yeah. Uh, to what you were saying about, I want to go to the, like the engagement and the, like you're kind of, I would imagine you're like descending in volume, increasing in speed. I believe like that was your example or like you're, you're, you're asking them questions along the way as you're progressing into, yeah. I guess the main sets. Yeah. I think that's where, as I perceive it, swimming was a little bit different. I, or even like the weight room, it, it and this is where I think that, like, I talk on this show a little bit, bit about, um, you know, masculine and feminine, or you could say left brain and right brain, whatever, you know, phrase is more appealing to you. But, like, I feel like the weight room and track are very, um, they're a little bit more like left brain, right hand in the sense of they're like, okay, walk in the weight room, right? Go do this, jump on this force plate. Like, that tells me how you're doing. You know what I'm saying? Like, versus you're going with them through an experience, you're seeing and observing, you're not, it's not. It is a number, but it's not just a number. You know, like you're also saying, oh, how are yeah. you feeling? What's the expression on their face? What was the time? You know, what's their right. tone and the feedback? I just think that's interesting because I do think that, you know, I have nothing wrong with like, to me, there's nothing at all wrong with force plates or bar speed. I think that stuff is great, but it's almost like when we, we start just viewing it like that and we don't like, it's like we become less or we could 
that could be a constraint that reduces our ability to observe and communicate right. and ask and then adjust, uh, if that makes right. sense. At least that's what I see from like swimming versus just a walk in, take this test, you know, fill out the survey <laughs> to, you know, to, right. as you go along. Right. Well, I remember there was this one, uh, I, I don't really, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but it's basically looking at overtraining and, and just performance issues and like, the takeaway that I got, I'm not, I don't know exactly what, what was studied, but it was basically the number one thing that worked was how are you doing today? Yeah. Just asking that question and like the information you get from that is more informative than like anything else that you could do. And so the way I've always approached it is, you know, literally asking that question or, or asking, you know, the, you know, some, some version of that and then comparing it to times. Yeah. And so if I'm, if, if the kids, so it's like the, the kids, normal and the times are normal we're normal we're good if the kid is whatever the body language isn't quite as good they're like uh, i don't know i'm just not sleeping very well but the times are still good you know we've kind of got a yellow light because they can still perform but there's something going on that that may be a problem later on um and then you know obviously if they're feeling terrible and they're they're swimming terribly like you know something is happening and and again like on a one-off basis, like, you know, people have bad days. They don't get a good night's sleep, but you don't need to change everything because of that. But like, if that happens for three days in a row or whatever, you know, you might have to make an intervention. And so I think that, um, you know, just calibrating between basic body language, how they're talking, what they're saying, and then how they're performing, like that's monitoring like 95% of, of, of what you need to know. Um, because, you know, their, their affect and, and how they're perceiving the world is a great indication of whether they're, how they're feeling. Yes. And then if they're performing, that's what they need to do is perform. And so with those two, those two, um, measurements and they take no time to do because you should be time, you should be getting their performance anyway. And it takes no time to ask them how they're doing. Um, that can really, really, really guide the, the, the process. And especially like, you know, there's a lot of athletes like, you don't, you know, and, and yeah, and, and the other thing too, it's like with with a wellness questionnaire or, or whatever. If that's like, you can't hear tone, you mm -hmm, can't hear yeah. any of those other things that are like, you know, even even more important. I, I remember I was coaching this this girl a while ago, and she was always the first one in the pool. And then there was this one day, she was like the second person in the pool. And I just started standing at the the side of the pool for like two seconds longer than she normally did. And I just turned to one of the other girls. I'm like, what's up with her? And they just were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, cause her boyfriend broke up with her the night before, but like stuff like that, if you're paying attention, like, you know, cause they just act a little bit differently and you know that something's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. I, I will say there are like in strength and conditioning, I think there's a lot of times situations where it's probably going to be pretty impossible for the coach to go around to every single athlete and you know, yeah. say, how are you doing? I mean, that'd be great, but like swimming, maybe you have a slightly smaller group Maybe you have a little yeah. bit more time before the session, but I mean, right. even still to say, I think it's really important. I mean, even one of the things um, that I remembered very clearly trying to do in strength and conditioning, and I heard this from Tony Holler, is like second time I mentioned him today was um, the idea of, of making sure you say every athlete's name in the course of the session, even if you have a lot of athletes. And the one, it's good because it makes the athlete feel seen and heard and you know that you're, you're like, okay, I see you. Uh, but right. then also it's your chance to also kind of check in with them on that level that does go beyond the and right. even the questionnaire too, like I've found that some athletes, it's like every day they're going to be a five. Like I'm, I can't not be a five. I have to be a five. <laughs> and some people are like more pessimistic, like every day there are two. <laughs> so you have, yeah, but you know, if it's like, all right, there are two, they're ready to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cause you know that that's what the kid is. 
Yeah. Yeah. So interesting to think about. And I think the, the name thing too, it's like, you don't have to sit down and have a five minute conversation with these kids. It literally takes five seconds to say, Hey man, how's it going? And like, you can just tell by the response is like, I'm doing good. Or like, Hey, <laughs> and if the kid says, Hey, every day, you know, it's not a problem, but if they normally say, Hey, I'm doing great. And then today they're like, Hey, then you probably have a problem. And yeah. So it, it doesn't take time. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It, it can definitely be a quick thing. And again, it, it also just improves. I think about this a lot. Like, you know, the way if you went to school for sports performance or coaching or, I mean, to me, it's all the same. Like, I don't think that, you know, it, outside of the, the basic, like, okay, it's this set of constraints for swimming. It's this set of constraints for track. It's this set of constraints for, you know, in the weight room or whatever. Like, yeah. And there are nuances for sure. But to me, coaching is coaching. And it's like, if you were to go to school for this, it's as if like, this is a machine and they don't really talk to you much in school about things that you get better at the way a master does, if that makes sense. Like yeah. a master craftsman gets better because <laughs> X, Y, Z and a better coach gets better. Not just because they, Oh man, well they went to the coaching conference and they learned this workout and that. And it's like, no, there are things that are powers of observation that you see yep. that you are getting better at as an individual, as a coach, as a, as a guide uh, every right. year. I just think that's really important to right. constantly. And, remember. And it also doesn't have to be verbal. So like, you know, in, in a strength context, they do their set and you know how it usually looks at a certain percentage and it's way slower, or they just like rack the bar and they're like, Oh, like that's a clue that something's different. Like their, their body language is telling you stuff all the time. Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, Hey, Andrew, I know I was, you know, I was going to talk to you. Well, all right. All right. I think I have time for this. All right, Andrew. So I, I got, all right, hang on. All right, Andrew. So I got just about all the questions for this, um, this, this one section. So shoot, we had th three and we got through one. So great. Uh, but I, I don't have a lot of time, but maybe the, the mini version, if that's possible is, um, gosh, this could be a whole podcast, but maybe here we go is an athlete who has ingrained a poor technique. Like, let's say maybe they came out of high school and they were like very, had this super analytical way that they entered the water. Like every, they're, they're thinking of an angle, right? Like every time, like maybe the track right. equivalent, someone who's trying to like run with their knees up all the time and they're trying to really mechanize their stride or whatever um how do you go about taking an athlete and kind of introducing reintroducing them to uh, a better technique whether that involves breaking down the current or just trying to use a constraints-led approach to just help them figure it out uh what's your thoughts on athletes who definitely have a poor quality technique and how and one that was maybe manufactured in a way um yeah. how do you uh what do you deal with that or how do you deal with that well, yeah. So I think the first thing is to really figure out what the underlying problems are before you do anything. Because again, you can, it's easy to fix these cosmetic things, but they may not be what's really happening. And if you don't address the underlying stuff, um, then you're just going to be spinning your wheels. It's going to be like whack-a-mole. Um, and then even if you identify the, the really important stuff, it's probably multiple things that you have to work on. And so you have to identify what's going to be the most important thing. Um, and which, like, which skill is going to, or which, you know, what do you want to work on that? If you take, if this gets fixed, it fixes like six other things. Mm -hmm. Like that's where you really want to start because again, you're not going to be able to change everything. Um, so pick the thing that's going to make the biggest impact. And then also you don't have to change everything because if you fix something, that's one thing that's really important and you fix one thing that's really important. I'm just talking about in a college situ situation, every uh, over four years. So you got four major things like that's pretty good. Most people don't change anything ever. They just change some cosmetic stuff. So think of being patient and knowing that you have time is important. Another thing to remember is that they, this is another, uh, Charlie Francis thing was that they may just be out of shape. And so you've never, this is a new kid. You've never really seen him before. Sometimes they're just, 
not fit. And then a month later, you're like, man, they're looking <laughs> way better. There was, yeah. you know, I've, there's been certainly kids that I've coached. I'm like, geez, like I just like put your hands in your heads. Like, what is this? And then a month later, it was like, oh, now I see this. This, this kid's good. So after that, you, you decide you're going to change something. The biggest thing I think is, is rather than talking to them about it, is you're designing tasks and you do this for anybody anyway. Um, that are that are going to address those hard to change skills, and so you're using constraints to put them in situations where they can learn without like consciously changing anything. So it's you're never really having the discussion of like, all right, Susie, we're going to fix X, Y, and Z. You need to do A, B, and C, and this is how it happens. You just put them in the si- situations where if they meet the demands of the constraints, they're going to move differently, and they're going to there's going to be some shift without too much con- um, conscious intervention. And sometimes you can take care of a whole lot of stuff by just doing that by just giving them the appropriate tasks and they just figure it out, you know, over time. Um, sometimes it doesn't, doesn't really work that way. And so if that's not really working, you may need to give them more of a push. And so you're going to have to um, introduce some other, other things and you may have to use some more extreme constraints to really push them out of what they're doing. Um, and, and if you do that, it's kind of be, has to be, it's kind of like Aladdin, that song, it's a whole new world. And so you have to show them something totally different and it's got to feel totally different. Um, you can't just do these micro adjustments because it'll never stick. It's got to be like, just like mind blown. That feels totally different. Um, I can see how that's different and now I kind of get it. And so if, if that's the route you have to go, you need to get, put them in situations where they have, they're going to feel something totally different rather than trying to explain it to them. Yeah. And then, and then once you kind of get to that point, now you have to reinforce those new ways of moving and it's kind of basically just training, but you're kind of constantly keeping in touch with those new ways, those new sensations, and then you're just training it. Um, and then you can kind of build the strength and the resilience to hold those skills together. So tie it all back. If you get lucky, you just use the basic constraints and it'll push them in a way towards, towards mm-hmm. um, fixing those problems. Sometimes you have to be a little bit more extreme. Um, and of course that comes with more risk, but sometimes you know it doesn't matter because if they don't change, they'll never do what they want to do anyway. And then, and that way, you're going to have to be a little bit more aggressive, but you're still trying to put them in situations where they can feel new ways of moving as opposed to just telling them what to do. Yeah. I like that. I, I like that because there's never going to be the same answer for every athlete, which everyone hates that answer, right? Cause like, Oh, just can't there be but one. You don't, yeah. But I don't, now I don't know what to do though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I like at least here's where you start yeah. is you yeah, can at least right. start with the constraints led approach and if they can solve the problem, then great. And then, but if they yeah. can't solve the problem, well, here's, your next layer of ways to intervene. It actually makes me think about fatigue as a powerful tool right there, like subtle fatigue that's causing that, that could be like a powerful thing that forces you to take on a better technique by virtue of maybe you don't have the physical energy to compensate the way you were before. And now it's going to drop you into a new way of movement. Yeah. Or, or you take away that they're over, you know, for whatever reason, they're overcompensating with some part of their body. You take that away from them and now they got to figure out what the, the area that you want them to use. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, cool. I also like to just um, last thing is I, I really do like the idea of that uh, Charlie Francis's term, like maybe they're just not in shape. It reminds me of something that Jeremy yeah. Frisch had said about athletes who um, just basically they just weren't very like fit and conditioned and coordinated. And then he had like talking about having people do like a lot of like um, like Dan Paff's like general strength and rudimentary rudimentary fitness and movement circuits. And then a few months later, like a lot of those like poor movement thing like 
the poor movement these athletes yeah. were demonstrating. A lot of it just got cleaned up just by being a better mover, <laughs> just by being yeah. a little fitter, better mover, having more movement options. Or like Boosh Sexier has talked about, can you do a deep squat? That's going to solve a lot of problems if you can just do an effective deep squat. So uh, I think a lot of times, yeah, we we like we're almost like chomping at the bit just to coach these things that we feel like we can right. control. All right, let me right. find this thing I control. I'm going to try to coach it and like. Yeah, just give the athletes some time and let them get in shape and maybe they'll figure right. it out themselves. I mean, because in most cases, when someone's coming to you for the first time, they probably haven't done anything for a month. So they're not going to be as strong as they normally would. They're not going to be able to hold positions as normally as they would. They're not going to have the same range of motion as they normally would. And that absolutely changes their movement options. And so just basic exposure to that stuff can clean a lot of stuff up. Yeah. All right. Well, sounds good, Andrew. I think we, we made it. Uh, we got through one third of all the questions I had. I wrote a lot for you and I was like, yeah, like I said, I'd like, oh, there's no way we're going to get through all this, but that's fine. I, I, I'm excited to get through the next round someday. And I cool. appreciate uh, everything you had to say and, and taking uh, the time to have the conversation with me. So thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Joel. Thanks for tuning in for another show. It was great having you here and we'll see you all next week.